the Catholics are telling us it's 7 o'clock, and that means it's time to begin. So welcome. Good to see you all here tonight. I'm sure there will be some uh, uh, trickling in after we begin, but uh, in case uh, you're not quite sure what this event is, tonight we're thinking about U.S. citizenship as Christians. Uh, wisdom, as we've been learning on Sunday morning, involves thinking about God's Word in relationship to all of life. So the, the question is, how do we think about God's Word in relationship to our U.S. citizenship? Well, tonight we have asked three men in our church who work at the intersection of citizenship and Christianity to uh, discuss that matter. And so I'm going to introduce them, then I'm going to uh, pray, and then I'll turn it over to Neil Harden, who will be facilitating our discussion tonight. Uh, Scott Waller is a professor of political science over at Biola University. He's especially interested in the intersection of religion and politics, as well as matters related to the First Amendment religion clauses. Uh, Scott and his wife, Kathy, have two adult children, and they have been a part of the Grace family since 2017. Matthew Wright is a professor at the Tory Honors College over at Biola. He's a political theorist whose interests include understanding how families and churches relate to political community. Matt and his wife, Ruthie, their three children have been a part of the Grace family since 2012. And then Neil Harden, is a writer and editor for Advocates for Faith and Freedom, which is a nonprofit religious liberty law firm. He also manages the Religion and Politics blog, where he examines political and theological issues from a Christian perspective. Uh, Neil, uh, by profession, is actually a metallurgical engineer, but after five years in the industry, he went and got a graduate degree in theology, and. Uh, has been pursuing the things that I just mentioned, and he's been a part of the Grace family since 2016. My name's Randy Gruendike. I'm an elder here at Grace. My responsibilities are now done, other than praying, and then I'll hand it over to Neil. Uh, one thing I'll mention, though, uh, there'll be a, a time near the end of the evening for question and answers. Uh, Kenny's going to move the microphone standard out here to the center. You're welcome to come up and speak into the mic, but if you'd refrain from uh, taking hold of, of the standard or removing the mic from the stand, that would be appreciated. Well, let me pray. Father, we thank you for tonight and your spirit who superintends over meetings like this. We ask that he would help us as we think through these things and especially, especially bless these men as uh, they discuss uh, U.S. citizenship and Christianity. Uh, we're grateful that we can meet here, that we can meet uh, freely as we do and speak of these things in the out of doors. What a, what a beautiful uh, blessing that is. So again, we pray uh, your kindness on the evening, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Neil. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, like Randy mentioned, I'm Neil Harden. So I just want to provide a bit of context for what we're, we'll be going through tonight. Um, you know, Christians can land all over 
the political spectrum. Um, so what we w the goal of tonight is really to provide, you know, what are the major worldview ideas that go into shaping how we look at politics, how we engage in government as Christians, how we look at all these ideas. Um, so first topic I want to dive into is, you know, what is politics? You know, we, we hear this word all the time. We talk about politics in the context of the workplace, politics in education, politics in government. Um, so we hear all these ideas of politics and um, sometimes I hear people describe politics as like just various groups of people trying to get power, but is this the Christian view of politics? How do we look at politics? Yeah, well, I'll go ahead and start. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna start with a uh, classical definition of, of politics. Um, Beginning with Aristotle, and we can talk about how that how that relates to biblical notion of politics. Um, so Aristotle, Aristotle says the political community comes into existence for the sake of life, but it persists for the sake of the good life. And and what he means by that is that as we move beyond the immediate associations of, of family, of uh, immediate uh, economic associations of, of, of friends and, and extended family, that um, there are material needs that naturally draw us beyond our immediate association. So we have, we have needs for reliable, um, a reliable defense. We have needs for uh, utilities, uh, a stable economic system, and so forth. These are the things that draw people beyond their immediate communities to form larger communities. But in that extension of community, he says there's something fundamental about who we are as social beings that we don't just want to live, we don't just want to survive, to, to find a life that is sufficient. Rather, when we engage with our, um, with our fellow human beings, we begin to ask questions about, about justice, about the way that the community should be ordered about, and when you ask questions about justice, you, you begin to think about, well, what is the good? What, uh, what human goods will inform the way that we think about justice and what's due to each person who brings a claim of justice? So that our fundamentally who we are as human beings, we, uh, we desire to order our lives in a just way in community and it's that, it's that dimension of human sociability. Aristotle says this is the thing that makes a political community what it is and transcend a mere uh, economic or uh, an economic association or something that's oriented to uh, simply meeting material needs. Also essential to that is the, is the idea of human rationality and argument engaging one another in debate. There's a, a Dominican um, political theorist, Thomas Gilby, who said civilization is formed when men are locked in rational argument, locked in debate. And um, it's that is the, the fundamental uh, idea of what it is that makes a community rise to the level of a political association. Well, good to be with you all tonight. It's um, 
it's going to become apparent, perhaps not in our opening statements here about the nature of politics, that Matthew and I are going to come at this uh, in a complimentary sort of way. Matthew is is probably much more of a theorist and, and coming at these issues in in more and in, in proper philosophical sense. I'm a political scientist. I'm in the deep weeds. I'm in the hurly burly of the uh, policy debates in American politics, and and uh, I, I run classes dealing with the uh, political process, the electoral college, uh, right down to you know helping our first year students understand the foundations of the American political order. So. There's a kind of directness about people like me that may not be indicative of, of the more philosophic type. And, and that can take people aback, I know, in, in, in my setting sometimes when we uh, see the next level of people who follow American politics, there's a kind of abruptness and uh, straightforwardness that, that can be uh, uh, sometimes shocking and, and for many off-putting. So we will try to modulate myself tonight in that regard. But I would largely... Uh, address, Neil, that first question in the, in the same kind of way. There's two contending understandings of politics, and I think particularly for Christians, the more modern sense of politics is pretty off-putting. Um, Harold Laswell, a uh, famous political scientist of the, of the 20th century, argued that politics was simply about who gets what, when, and how, that it was simply a, a power or resource allocation, and it invites us to consider a kind of necessary conflictual environment and, and doesn't really necessarily speak to Christian virtue in this regard. And so politics and the Christian faith and the Christian worldview seem quite antithetical if, if Harold Laswell was right about politics. But I would agree with Matthew that a more classic understanding of an Aristotelian understanding of politics marries very, much better, I think, with a biblical sense of things. And, and that is what I'd maybe make a, a comment about. If Aristotle says that the, that the question of politics is how we ought to order our lives together, that the oughtness of that question implies that there is normativity, that there's better and worse ways of getting at things. And um, it really engenders, at the beginning of our evening, uh, a question that I think would be worth posing to you. Um, do you really believe that Christianity offers things about human flourishing, um, not only in terms of the life hereafter, in terms of eternal life, but the life here and now? I get often opportunities to speak to these issues in Christian settings, and I think that's a good way for us to start our evening, is pondering the question as we work through these issues of whether we hold a view of Christianity to be something that might inform that normative political question. Yeah, so we have a basic understanding of what politics is generally. So how does the Christian worldview, like you said, map onto these ideas of politics? How, how does, what does the Bible say about government and God's role in, in government? Let me just, you know, one of the real weaknesses, and Randy uh, alluded to the fact that, that the uh, Catholic Church next door uh, called, us, called us to order in a sense. Roman Catholics and social teaching are far ahead of where evangelicals have, are and have been. And it is one of the real weaknesses of modern evangelicalism in, in terms of our, our, our inability to collectively reflect on a public theology of engagement. Um, oftentimes evangelicals are rightly critiqued that our attention span in politics lasts just about up until the next election and then we lose um, uh, attention uh, to the political enterprise. And so oftentimes evangelicals get accused of a kind of ready, fire, aim strategy in this regard. And so all too often 
our response to American politics is really a, simply a function of a, correct, uh, uh, a perceived correct reaction to the next election. And we really do need to give some more serious thought as we as a body might have some reason and a more long-term view as to why we might want to engage in the political sphere. Yeah, so I'll launch into another kind of theoretical <laughs> theoretical explanation. We'll just kind of go back and forth between theoretical and practical um, to, in thinking about how, how it is that a classical understanding relates to a more uh, biblical understanding of politics. I'll say that um, my the bulk of my work has been in the natural law tradition uh, with uh, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, in recently, though, I've turned to thinking about uh, political theology and how we approach uh, political categories and thinking about the nature of politics from a biblical perspective. A lot of the reading that I've done uh, has been with the work of Oliver O'Donovan, who is a emeritus. Uh, political ethicist and theologian at um, from Oxford, a wonderful evangelical Anglican um, thinker, and his ar his argument is that in order to understand the nature of politics, we have to look at the way that God interacted as uh, interacted with the nation of Israel as the king of His people. He identifies three things that I just want to run through. Uh, briefly, as far as the, the, what the essence of politics, the first thing is that God, uh, God, with salvific power, chooses for Himself a people. And initially, He is uh, identifying Abraham and calling him out and giving him identity um, in his descendants, identity as a people. But God's power is over and over exercised on behalf of the nation of Israel in defining and calling them out, identifying them as a people. The second thing that he points to is the, is the judgment of God in righteousness. The Psalms repeat over and over that the throne of God is established in justice and righteousness. So this is God communicating to his people uh, what his requirements of them, uh, what his requirements of them are. The, th the third thing he points to is uh, he gives to his people a possession. Um, this is something that I found really, uh, really compelling in making connections to the work that, that I had done uh, previously. But So the idea of possession is that God gives his people uh, land, one, but he also gives them the law, which defines for them um, the way of life, um, the way of understanding their relationship to God, their way of understanding their relationship to one another. Um, and the law and the land are given to them as a generational inheritance and possession, something that um, sustains the, the life of the community through generations. So from this, he, really, he begins to develop the idea of understanding what it is to be a people under God's kingship as a, as a generational project, a, a tradition that one, is a, uh, that one is a part of, and that there are particular things that God gives to his people to, to understand what, what, what that tradition is, who they are, and they participate in that um, generationally. Now, I think there's a the question. I don't know if I'm going on too, too long here. 
ahead. The question of how it, just briefly, I guess, how that understanding of politics relates to what Aristotle says. Um, I think the idea, the essential idea of deliberation and a pursuit of the good and understanding justice in Aristotle is connected, and this is to, to your point, um, Scott, a minute ago about this, this desire to uh, live rightly, to understand what justice is. Aside from God giving the law to his people in, uh, in secular communities out, outside of um, God's direct kingship, we enter in more to a deliberative process about thinking, uh, thinking about what righteousness is and understanding uh, the way that God has uh, ordered and structured the world that connects more to the, to the universal moral law that's reflective of, of the eternal mind and design. Yeah, let me go off of that. It says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Um, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says very similarly, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So theologically and biblically, the government seems to be this institution which God has established for our good. Um, throughout Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, it uses a lot of uh, moral language about how the government is there for our good, the government is there to uh, praise good and to punish evil, to establish kind of a, a law and order and justice in, in society. So let me move on to uh, the next topic of like, okay, well, given that God has established government, why, why does that mean that Christians should care about government? We read in uh, John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is speaking there before Pilate. And likewise, Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the words kingdom and citizenship are both political terms. They seem to be pointing us to some reality beyond this earth. So, yeah, all that being said, why should Christians care about the politics of this earth? Well, look, I, those passages that you read, Neil, I think are important for us to reflect upon. Do we, do we see the realm of government and politics as purely a worldly endeavor? Um, do we see it as something that shouldn't soil us as, as a body of Christ? Or do we see and have strong theological understanding and belief that, that government is a God-ordained instrument uh, for order, and, and believers, do we possess unique things to offer that kind of political order to our fellow citizens within that political order? Um, take for one example the United States of America. This is a political order that values freedom, that, that we have had a long history uh, that we have recently departed from of what is called ordered liberty or ordered freedom. Um, and it begs the question, what role would religion play in ordering that freedom and the longevity of the freedoms that we've enjoyed in this country? Is order, uh, is liberty to be understood as properly residing in a kind of secular square? And it's an open question. I think I have uh, some views on this question in terms of what we're seeing in our, in our current political society as to whether a secular public order possesses the necessary resources to maintain liberty 
And I think some of the social fabric and some of the issues that we're seeing going on and around us in the greater culture today are reflective of the fact that we have departed from a kind of foundation or seedbed that this country uh, rested upon for over 200 years. And it's really just in our kind of lifetimes that we've seen uh, a departure from that and the implications I think are particularly serious. So yeah, I think as believers, um, we do offer something individually and collectively, I think we offer something significant to a political order that values freedom. Yeah, I guess I would just add to that. I mean, I think that um, we pursue the goods of politics and pursue um, understanding and promoting the common good. I think for the same reason that we pursue any other um, natural good that God has given us in this world. Um, we're fallen, our natures are fallen and twisted and affected by sin, but the, the design of the creator is not effaced entirely. Um, and we, under, we understand, I think as, as Christians, we understand that God has given us, God has, has made things in this world. He created the world as good. And part of what, we're do, what we do as Christians is act redemptively in pursuing those goods and understanding them according to God's design. I think that, that, that politics falls within the category of those natural sorts, uh, those natural goods, as a natural association that analogous to pursuing a, uh, a robust, flourishing family life, analogous to um, uh, getting to know people and, and building friendships within the local community. Um, I think politics is, a, is of that nature that as we, um, as we engage it, as Christians, I think it's a necessary institution, but it's more than simply a necessary institution. As we uh, as we engage it thoughtfully, um, we can we can see the good that God has created it for, and we can pursue um, we can pursue justice and the common good because politics always involves thinking about what it means to be human, the questions that we have to answer at the political level in order to, uh, to get along, to have a society, necessarily involve reflection on human nature. Yeah, and I would add to that. For me, uh, particularly as a theologian, what, what I base my own Christian involvement in politics is, is predicated on our command, on the command to love our neighbor. Um, you know, when you look at what politics is, that the nuts and bolts level, the policies that we all uh, end up having to live with, you know, our neighbor down the street who's struggling financially, the tax rates are going to affect whether they can put food on their table, whether maybe they're, the business that they work for uh, stays in business or not, you know, how the criminal justice system functions and whether that person, you know, maybe goes to uh, uh, jail for X amount of years or this amount of years or whether they actually get their justice in court or not, um, you know, even Right now, we're having to meet outside because of government regulations, and uh, it's, you know, you can you can make obviously make the case that those are necessary and good, and that the government has a proper role in that. Um, it's 
But ultimately, my, my point in bringing this up is that because we love our neighbor, we ought to care about politics. Because we care about the well-being, because we care about the flourishing of our neighbor, of our family, of in, even selfishly motivated, even about our own situation. Um, but ultimately, the, the command to love God and ultimately to love our neighbor is what I uh, personally use as a basis for you know, why we should be engaged in politics. So I think we can make a fairly good case that Christians have some kind of responsibility to be politically engaged, but let's put a little more meat on that. What, is, what does that look like in practical terms? Like how, how do Christians, if we have this responsibility, then how do we steward this well and how do we be... Uh, how do we engage the political system? Um, Neil, I think we need to have a chastened understanding of politics. It's, uh, I think you hearing from Dr. Wright and I uh, an, an admonition to you all as believers and say to you, um, you have within you and your relationship with Christ the requisite resources uh, to speak into a very important area of our life, and this is the political realm. It, it certainly has a kind of two-way flow in terms of culture impacting it and it impacting culture. But I think we, uh, on, the, on the flip side or the complementary side of this, we need to have a chastened view of politics in terms of what's accomplishable in the political realm. Um, some thinkers have called this an Augustinian sensibility about politics, referring to the dichotomy that, that Augustine famously offered us in his City of God in the two competing loves or affections. Um, politics is a realm and that, that we should engage, but we shouldn't expect too much from it. Um, in terms of perfection, politics is the realm of that which is possible, not with the realm of that which is perfect. It is often said that American politics is properly a kind of secular bastion and that as believers, we are to be kept outside the door uh, on this regard. And that's something that um, fills my day almost on a daily basis of trying to raise up a new generation of believers who are trained in these kinds of things who can speak into this and challenge the kind of secular conclusions that we've come to it. Richard John Newhouse, a, a man, man that I did my doctoral dissertation on, wrote a book in 1984 that has equal resonance today as it did in 1984. He wrote a book called The Naked Public Square. And the Naked Public Square thesis is that, that what we have coming upon the public square is an attempt to strip it, an intentional disrobing of, of the public square of its religious presence of any kind of substantive content. And this is, he argued, being imposed upon us by the elites of American culture. And America has been described by one sociologist uh, recently departed as a nation of Indians led by Swedes. And here's what he meant by that. Um, the nation of Sweden is one of the most secular nations in the world. And the, and the nation of India is one of the most religious nations in the world. He says that America is led by a group of people who, would, who have the kind of intellectual framework of Swedes and most of us find ourselves with the intellectual and religious framework of Indians. And this is what we need to challenge. Um, there's a host of books that I'm very pleased um, to expose my students to that challenge the, the idea that the American founding was a product of kind of uh, enlightenment thinking, 
that at best it was informed by a kind of deism. Um, that, that represents a kind of historical revisionism that I think pushes back on communities like this to assume our proper, proper place, and it's usually sort of somewhere on the margins of communities. Yeah, um, I mean, I think we, the question again, <laughs> could you repeat? Yeah, so like, how do we have a, uh, how do we, uh, if we have a responsibility to be engaged politically, then how does that look? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I think when we th think about um, responsibility of political engagement, we tend to think about um, keeping up with what's going on, calling your congressman or congresswoman for, um, important issues, you know, knowing how you're voting and that sort of thing. Um, I think that, I think that sort of stuff is important. Um, I think at the same time, and th this connects to um, O'Donovan's point about understanding um, a political community in a, um, in a generational sense, understanding the community and what it is, wh who we are as um, institutions and habits and um, patterns that have been passed down through generations. I think a very important idea in thinking about politics is not the active citizen, but rather the culturally embedded citizen, which points to the significance of civic education, of understanding, um, the, the institutions that we've inherited, understanding something of their uh, rationale and development. I mean, we, we find ourselves you know, most recently with the um, confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett with all kinds of argument about the legitimacy of this process. But of course, this process has a, um, a deep and complicated history. Being able to being able to comment on what's going on currently in, a, in an informed way and in a way that can understand the institution as it exists now, contribute to it and possibly reform it or know what it is that you need to preserve. In order to do that, you've got to understand something of the, tradi the, inherited, uh, the inherited tradition. James Davidson Hunter, sociologist at the University of Virginia, um, talks about sociologically the difference between the the weather and the climate the weather is what's happening now the climate is the weather patterns as they persist over over time he says way too often we we think uh, we we're just focused on the changing weather patterns instead of understanding the climate and I think, I think that's a real, I mean, it's a real challenge for American citizenship now and the, the, um, the poverty of civic education that we have in our country. But I think as uh, active thinking Christian citizens, we need to be focused on that, that dimension of are we, are we prepared to engage as culturally embedded citizens? Scott, real quick, could you talk about just uh, what the American system offers to us that may be unique for uh, Christians in this country, like, how, like ways that we can be engaged? 
Well, I, I mean, obviously, we enjoy liberties in this country that other people around the world um, literally risk their lives to uh, to try to attain. So the 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 issues of the Bill of Rights, um, as as Americans, sometimes we take these kinds of things for granted, but we we've we perhaps lost sight of the fact that what undergirds those Bill of Rights is precisely the kinds of things that are in our wheelhouse. Um, um, our rights do not exist at the sufferance of the United States government. The founding generation argued that the role and the ends of government were to protect the rights that pre-existed political societies, that they were grounded in nature and nature's God. Um, uh, to hold such views today might disqualify one for the U.S. Supreme Court. That's how far we've come. As recently as the 1980s, uh, Robert Bork was disqualified uh, in the minds of many notable politicians of even recent sort uh, for arguing and being bold enough and having the temerity to, to argue that there, were, there was such a thing as a natural law, that there, there were things that grounded the nature of justice, that grounded the nature of our rights in a political society. Um, if there is such thing as a moral framework out there, and I believe it does, these are the kinds of things that speak into our framework. So it's oftentimes that believers develop a small man complex. Oh, woe's me, I don't really have anything to say to the greater culture because we've accepted that the culture as a whole is, is secularized and we've, tech, we've, we've uh, accepted a kind of truncated or balderized view of Christianity that's merely a kind of thing that works privately or, or maybe in small groups in, in this nature. Um, case in point, uh, I was relaying to some, uh, uh, some students in a class several years ago, a young woman named Christine O'Donnell, I believe was her name. She was running for the Senate in Delaware. And she gave a public policy address that morning that I, that I heard a report on. And the public policy address happened to be on the issue of abortion. And she grounded her pro-life view on a biblical framework uh, concerning the nature of a human person. I relayed that to, to a group of uh, students in a GE survey of American government class. A young man raised his hand in the back of the room and he said, doesn't that violate the separation of church and state? And uh, upon exploring that with him, um, what that young man understood in, in some part of his past was that, that a hammer was always hanging over people like our heads called the separation of church and state and that if we were ever to bring our religious views to bear in the public square, and God forbid that we would do that in a uh, running for a public office and ground the nature of our arguments for a public policy position in religious presuppositions, that this would somehow violate the dictates of the foundations of the American political order. And oftentimes, um, uh, of all people, we're accused or, or told to check what is most important in your life and check it at the door when you come to the public square. In fact, there's probably no other group of people who not only encourage from the outside to do that, but in many cases are encouraged from the inside to do that. Yeah, and you know, there's a difference between a responsibility to be engaged, but also being engaged responsibly. Um, something that has helped me in shaping my own view of American citizenship is, you know, thinking that we are, that our first and foremost, our identity as Christians is in Christ. 
You know, it's not in being a Republican or Democrat. It's not being an American citizen. It's not in you know any of these political institutions. Our primary identity is in Christ. But at the same time, God has placed us, all of us, in a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain culture, with certain uh, institutions, governmental institutions. Um, and it, it seems oh, odd in, in some ways, although I guess I can understand that um, I know that we that some people don't view that we have a uh, some type of type of responsibility to to steward that well, but we also want to uh, be engaged in a responsible way and making sure that our con conduct as Christians in the political sphere is also reflective of our primary identity as Christians. And Scott, you brought up separation of church and state. I I kind of want to move on uh, to that. And, and did you have something you wanted to add? Okay. So, yeah, separation of church and state, that's a, a huge topic nowadays. So if Christians do have a responsibility to be engaged and we want to be engaged uh, well, how should our faith inform our political engagement? You know, maybe we can talk about what exactly is separation of church and state and you know, how our faith should play into that. So you want to you take the issue of separation of church and state first? Sure. Okay. Um, the, the, the very phrase separation of church and state uh, of course, is nowhere contained in the United States Constitution. It comes from a, a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a group of dissenting Baptists in 1803. And these dissenting Baptists up in Connecticut um, desired that Thomas Jefferson, the president of the United States in the early 1800s, would do for them what he did for his home state of Virginia back in the, 18, uh, the 1780s. And that was to uh, break the establishment ties between uh, the church and the state at the state level, uh, which was done in the 1780s. And Jefferson made a reference to the First Amendment of the Constitution and its religion clauses and argued, or, or just sort of parenthetically stated, that the First Amendment entailed a separation of church and state. That language is dormant for over 140 years. In terms of its being invoked into constitutional law, the language of separation of church and state doesn't get invoked until 1947 in a Supreme Court case called Everson versus Board of Education. And uh, the, the short story of it is, is a kind of historical revisionism uh, came upon the court that day. And for the succeeding 40, 50 years now, the court has uh, uh, painted a very different picture of the nature of religion and its relationship to the American political order, and argued that the First Amendment to the Constitution, which contains two religion clauses, actually entails that the public square be secular. And uh, that is a, a pretty significant piece of judicial historical revisionism that has gone on. I mean, we don't want to go on too long about it. If you're interested in talking more about this, perhaps afterwards we, could, we can engage on this. But that really turns the First Amendment and the purpose of it completely on its head. So, unless you want to comment on that, uh, you know, how, how should our faith inform our political engagement? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I think that, that Christians along these lines, Scott, should feel comfortable in the public, public square making explicitly Christian arguments for any um, poly, uh, policy position that they're convinced of. So uh, discussing the issue of um, abortion 
um, arguing that, that all human life is um, made in the image of God. Um, I think that, that that's something that we should be free to do. Um, at the same time, I, I, I think that there is a place for engaging the, the public square as a Christian within the, within the natural law framework, which is um, essentially that the, the idea I referred to, I believe, in, the, in, in, in talking initially about the nature of politics, but that, that the design of the human person, who God has made us, as, as human beings is oriented to uh, oriented to certain goods. So there are um, there are natural goods that we can that we can talk about in um, in pursuing human flourishing, whether that's in the family or uh, in other forms of association or just understanding the natural created design of the human person. I think that's a that's an important way of thinking about how we how we engage the public square. Yeah, and, and maybe to offer a, a counter argument or something that maybe you can address, a lot of people will say that by bringing our faith into the public square, we are, quote, imposing our values on others. Like, how, how should we as Christians respond when that argument is presented to us? It is, um, and, it, and it is supposed to be a, a kind of hammer that is invoked to uh, cause us to shrink back and say, oh, you're right, some vague and understanding of the separation of church and Satan tales that I keep my religious views to myself, and that I certainly wouldn't either in a natural law framework or an overtly religious argument make an argument in the public square. Um, you know, let's th think of an example. If, if, there were, if there were three people on this stage tonight who had, who had three very fundamental different worldviews and what animated them, if we were to interview those three people on the stage, and find out that really at their core they were they were motivated by three different things. Um, perhaps you have a, a, a sort of radical feminist whose whose whole life is governed out of, out of her perceived the perceived injustices to women across time and history, and that just absolutely animates animates her in everything she does, including her politics. And then there might be a a, a gay man on stage who's Whose, whose identity as a, as a gay man uh, animates his life in such a way that he, he can't but help think about things from uh, that perspective, politics included. And then there's uh, a, an evangelical Christian on the stage who thinks that um, her biblical understanding of things should animate not only how she lives out her life, uh, her marriage, how she might raise her children, how she might think about politics. Um, of all those people on the stage, it seems that there's, a, there's only a cultural pressure being brought to bear on the latter um, to not impose. And, and here's what I think the pushback should, should be on that. Do we really think Christianity is about truth? Do we really think that Christianity gets at things, as, as uh, Professor Wright has already intimated? Do we really think that, say, Christianity describes the human person as, it, as he or she really is? And if so, that should give us a confidence to not feel like we're imposing. I think that that's a word that's sort of used in a pejorative sense to silence. Um, should we, shouldn't we offer our understanding? In fact, uh, from a spiritual standpoint, I believe we have an enlightened understanding on these issues to offer to people who perhaps in a, in a state of spiritual darkness 
are in fact in an epistemological state of darkness and need to hear from people like you on these questions. And last thing I would say on this point is then in many cases, our Christian virtues are almost used against us in the public square. That in some way that if we were to make arguments from our religious perspective, either overtly or, as Matthew suggested, maybe through a natural law framework, that in some way we're not being civil. And so oftentimes in the name of civility, we will withdraw. And that, that Christianity for, for us might become not so much about truth as it is about a kind of sentiment. If civility ever replaces truth in Christianity and civility ever becomes uh, acquainted in ideas with just mere sentiment, then I think we're not in a good position to argue in the public square. Yeah, one, one thing I'll add to that, I agree with, with um, Scott's thoughts on this. I think at the same time we are in a very difficult situation uh, culturally and politically in understanding just how much um, diversity and um, a difference of opinion and different ways of life we can accommodate in our society. What, you know, what, what kind of agreement is, is necessary about fundamental issues with, you know, about what it means to be, a, to be a human person and what you can define for yourself and demand that society at large recognize your self-definition um, and to what degree communities that are um, deeply invested and committed to a traditional morality or traditional way of, of viewing the world and human nature. Um, to what degree, uh, I mean, how we're, how we're going to coexist and what sorts of things we have to have agreement on and what sorts of things we're going to be able to negotiate a kind of uh, live and let live political and social situation, I think is, I mean, I think we're, we're kind of blindly going forward in American society right now trying to figure that out. And I think that's one of the real um, difficulties when it comes to um, thinking about um, making a Christian argument in the public square. You know, are, are we in a situation? One of the things that Aquinas says about law is that in any society, the law has to be commensurate to the moral, um, the moral standing, the, the moral content or fiber of the people. Um, and that a, so that a law that is just fundamentally at odds with the, the character of the people will be rejected. And will and law can will fall into greater and greater uh, disre, disrepute and um, and a, sort of a rejection of law, uh, leading to anarchy. But so so that so the question then is as our as our society um, fragments and frays and dissolves increasingly on our understanding of what it even is to be a human person. I mean, we live in a society where the the elites think that a man can have a baby. 
let's uh, you know we're just we're we're in we're beyond the looking glass now. Um, so what what it means, I think what it means to think about making arguments in the public square for the sorts of things that we should contend for particular uh, positions that. Um, that requires a great amount of discernment, I think. I think one thing that we do not need to do is easily, easily simply retreat from the institutional norms that we, um, institutional norms that we have inherited. So on the issue, on the issue of gay marriage, I talk to students um, frequently in, well, frequently is too much. I talk with my students from time to time in office hours about the issue of, of gay marriage, particularly when that was, you know, when that was the big thing being litigated culturally. And the the um, thing that I heard very often is, well, this is a this is a very important Christian institution, and I'm I'm uncomfortable as a Christian imposing this on you know on society. I think we've kind of gone past that, but. That misses, I think, the real hard thinking that Christians need to do about what are, aside from the biblical revealed goods of this institution, what are the real human goods that this institution protects? And are we doing a disservice to not only the present generations, but to future generations for not vigorously making the argument in the public square, these are the goods that need to be protected. Most, fun most fundamentally, an institution that connects a mother and father to their children. I think, we're, I think we make a mistake if we too quickly retreat uh, retreat from these institutions, and it may be the case that they're just going to dissolve and disappear. But they should not, that should not happen, aside from real arguments being made in their favor. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where this leads, we'll see where it goes, um, but I think we have a responsibility. Yeah, I mean, ultimately anyone, because government by nature is coercive, you know, it says you have to do this or you can't do that, Anyone who seeks to shape public policy or the laws of this land in some way is, in some sense, imposing their values on, on the populace. Because you know, everyone, legislators, lobbyists, you know, everyone who tries to influence public policy has a worldview that they're bringing to the table. And so the question isn't, are we imposing our values? It's more, which worldview is best equipped to, you know, justify the types of moral, uh, the moral rigor that we need to make these arguments in the public square. So, and this doesn't mean that all morals need to be legislated. Uh, I think that's a, another common uh, fear is that, well, if we bring our faith to the table, then we're gonna legislate everything that the Bible says into public, and that's not necessarily what, what has to follow from that. So, yeah, that, that brings the main portion of our discussion to a close. I wanna transition to uh, Q&A. Uh, there is a mic over here, which will be set up right here. Um, just a couple of brief comments about that. Make sure not to touch the mic just for COVID reasons. Um, and then also, uh, I, I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but it, it's a Q&A, not MQ&A. It's not a monologue question and answer. So try, try and keep your uh, questions brief. 
Um, and then while people are coming up, I'll just uh, start off with the first question. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of question on people's minds right now is, uh, you know, voting. You know, we have an election coming up here in a few weeks, and you know, we have probably what looks like two less than ideal candidates in a lot of ways. You know, they are, and really the moral battle or the moral dilemma that we kind of face is, you know character versus policy. That, that's kind of what I hear over and over again. You know, do we vote for someone with, with less than ideal character but good policy or the, the opposite, which uh, is kind of usually how the argument goes. So w what kinds of uh, values or what, kind, what kinds of thought processes do you use when you go into the voting booth when making that decision? Uh, I, I speak to myself and I speak to my students and I speak to you tonight um, in, in addressing that question, Neil, and asking um, what are my views more informed by? Are they informed by a rigorous understanding of biblical principles, or, or am, I, am I more informed by a kind of succumbing to cultural currents? Uh, to push back today against the cultural currents in many of these issues is hard. Um, so some of the virtues that we may need to demonstrate in the public square is courage, and virtue, to stand for things that few will stand for. In fact, there's in very many ways, we may be the last people um, willing to stand in the gap on issues that we need to stand in the gap for. And we need to be people solidly, biblically grounded in those, in those views. I see far too many people who purport to come from a religious perspective who are far more interested in virtue signaling and going along with the culture um, when it's clear, at least, at least it's clear to me, that there are biblical precepts and biblical principles that demand us to take an alternative view on these, on these kinds of questions. And uh, I'm quite pleased that the discussion um, has, has arrived at kind of these practical outworkings, and I, and I sort of mentally rub my hands together in glee for that because um, we can't forget that politics is not just talking about things. But as you said, Neil, somebody's version of the right way to go is going to find the force of legislation, and that and law is coercive. And, and we, at the very least, as citizens of this country, have the right um, to weigh in in that regard. And, and I'm trying to say to you tonight, we should weigh in with our shoulders held back, that we, there should be a confidence that as the early church saw Jesus as the very center of wisdom and knowledge, that we can approach all of our aspects of the life, um, politics included, as people who are acquainted and have an experiential knowledge of him who is the very center of wisdom and knowledge. That causes my shoulders to go back and my head be held high. And though I may see a political candidate that I support defeated, it doesn't dissuade me um, from holding to biblical principles as they might inform my public policy positions. Yeah, I mean, the character um, versus policy um, issue in recent years has been a particularly tough one. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I have, uh, I, I think I've intended to um, gravitate towards um, an emphasis on policy and looking at the um, looking the, at the people in the administration um, 
you know, on, on the presidential level, the people in the administration, um, also thinking about um, preservation of institutions, um, the, the uh, you know, as far as voting in a presidential election, it's the only way that we really have access to the, um, to the insti affecting institutionally the Supreme Court, as is well known. I, th I think stuff like that weighs in really significantly when the, um, actually I think it weighs very significantly at any time, but particularly when um, the, the, as far as the character that you're looking at, um, it, it's not good on either side. Can I just add one last one last thing real quick? It needs to be emphasized that, that elections are blunt instruments. They're hammers, they're sledgehammers, they're not scalpels. Um, that policy directions, particularly um, it seems that the 2020 presidential election and, and maybe on, on down, down ticket, um, down ballot uh, elections may have this effect as well. But there's going to be a significant difference in public policy direction. And I'm not sure what, what policy direction you all would support, but I think I can uh, confidently say that the direction of a second Trump administration would be markedly different than uh, a Biden-Harris administration and vice versa. So uh, I would encourage you um, to look at American elections when we consider policy versus character um, in, in light of the fact that, that elections are blunt instruments not fine instruments. Scott, I was intrigued by one of your early comments that evangelicals are far behind Catholics in a theology of engagement. And I think one of the areas where that's most vividly seen is that whereas evangelicals are reasonably well represented in the elected branches of government, we are not as well represented in the judiciary. Um, it was noted that if Judge Barrett is confirmed, that would make six Catholics on the Supreme Court, with Gorsuch being an Anglican and then Breyer and Kagan being Jewish. So what do you think accounts for the fact that evangelicals are not as well represented in the judiciary compared to the legislative and executive branches? Yeah, I think it goes, I think it goes back to the, um, something called the fundamentalist-modernist divide. If you look at the history of the universities of this country in the 19th century um, and take tours of these institutions, you'll see that they, they, they were, the, the big ones, were generated out of religious presuppositions. There was an equation of religious and knowledge uh, that generated those universities. In the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, um, there was a kind of intellectual battle that took place. If you're interested in reading about this, George Marsden is one of the uh, preeminent historians that has chronicled something called the, the fundamentalist-modernist divide. And the effect of it was that the modernists won and that the institutions that, that uh, what were called fundamentalists, what we would call an evangelical today, um, they took over the great institutions that, that fundamentalists slash evangelicals had started and evangelicalism became associated with anti-intellectualism. And I think this is why, uh, Philip, that, that, that the Roman Catholic Church has, has begun to do circles around this, because anti-intellectualism, anti at least in large part of, parts of Roman Catholicism, hasn't, hasn't uh, inundated uh, as it, I think it has in evangelicalism. I, I, I'm proud to say and pleased to say 
that a new generation, uh, sparked by people like J.P. Moreland and Bill Craig and Alvin Plantiga and, and people of this ilk, have sparked a kind of renaissance in evangelical thinking. And this is a good thing. Uh, it's one of the things that, uh, as a younger man, drove me um, to, to graduate school and to study so that uh, we could begin to kind of turn that thing around. You mentioned in the, in early on that loving your neighbor was one of the motives for politics. And in my experience, loving a person requires, or uh, people, requires a knowledge of the truth about the situation they're in, at, at the present situation, and also a knowledge of the good that they should be in, that they're not in. And when I get in political discussions, I get into lots of arguments over what the truth is and what the good is that we should be trying for. And are they can be seriously inverted. You know, you talk about racism, for example, in this culture, and the question of is a particular event motivated by racism or not? And that's necessary. I mean, you can't talk about fixing racism until you know whether it's racist or not that you just saw. And similarly with, you know, what do we strive for? What do we want out of a culture with respect to race? And all over the playing field. So how do we even engage in loving the neighbor constructively, you know, when we can't agree on what is, especially with fake news, or we can't agree what should be? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is uh, don't do it over social media. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, when we, when we do engage in those kinds of discussions over social media, we lose every form of uh, communication that we would normally have in face-to-face -face conversation, body gestures, the tone of our voice, and it's just words. And especially if we're talking about an emotionally charged situation, like just human nature, we're, we are sometimes bound to read the worst into a person's comments rather than uh, what they might actually mean. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, part, part, of, part of our duties as Christians is to make arguments and to make arguments well. That's, and, and that's something that, uh, I don't know, it kind of goes back to the anti-intellectualism that you were talking about, that we, we haven't been, we don't have this like rich, long tradition that, that the Catholics have of like how to make these kinds of arguments grounded in biblical truth. And, you know, frankly, we, we just aren't very... Um, Know, knowledgeable about these uh, types of things, you know, what, why does the Bible inform our consciences in this way? And so, um, yeah, it's just, we, we need to be more rigorous in our study of God's Word. We need to, you know, I'm glad we're going through the book of Proverbs right now on Sunday morning. You know, we, we need to seek the wisdom of God um, in hopes that we can have these discussions and, you know, make good arguments and, you know, hopefully it, it won't devolve into, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we see on social media and publicly nowadays where it's just a rancor. Um, you know, but ultimately, you know, we make our arguments and that's, sometimes that's all we can do. We can't always convince people that's not always uh, our job. Sometimes they are stuck in a certain way of thinking and we, you know, we present the arguments and leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit. And, and there's an art and science to talking to people, right? I mean, there's a science that, that focuses on, on promulgating truth and propositional content. And then there's the art of talking to someone and being winsome. And uh, I'm looking at a group of people who can be winsome because they have a reason to be winsome. 
um, in, a, in a political environment uh, that is usually filled with rancor and hatred and animus, of all people, we have reason to look at the people, even people we vehemently may disagree with, um, through different eyes. And that, that really can change a, a kind of political discourse. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think aside from people having already cultivated the habit and practice of engaging with people of very different viewpoints and um, um, learning to t learning to talk that through. I think it, I think aside from that, it it uh, it does take time and building relation relationships and um, I guess um, cultivating a kind of um, confidence in the other person, the other person's goodwill um, that that enables that enables you to engage seriously ways that they are just way beyond anything that you would take to be reasonable we had a um this last year living up in in new jersey a uh landlady who's a one a wonderful woman that we really enjoyed getting getting to know but it became pretty um obvious early on that as far as her political views you know we were just on opposite sides of the spectrum um, I was working on political stuff. She knew I was a, a political theorist. She, she was kind of interested in that. Um, and we would have conversations that skirted serious issues, but no, we never really engaged. But uh, you know, we would invite her for dinner and got to know her over the course of the year. It was very interesting to me that on the last day that we were there, we were, we were literally loading up the U-Haul to drive uh, to drive away, um, and she came over and and said, "I've been wanting to ask you what you think about all these political issues." And she she kind of buttonholed me for two hours, asking me asking me questions like I you know I have a she had a sense of where we were coming from, and it completely baffled her that we would have the views that, uh, that, I, that I might have the views that I do, but the relationship that we developed really impelled her to find out why we thought, Ruthie and I think the way we do. And therein lies something really powerful, and it sounds opposite of what I, I think we've been saying on this stage tonight in terms of being confident and expressing, um, your, your, involving yourself in the public square but sometimes silence shouts. And the ability to restrain yourself, uh, particularly in your, in, in your case, Matthew, when you knew that you would be in, in, you know, in, in this woman's world for, for, for quite a while, the ability to stay your tongue when somebody else knows you have something to say and you still stay your tongue for a while engenders that kind of conversation that you eventually had. I mean, she just couldn't take it anymore. She just had to know. What makes you tick? That's interesting. Yeah. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. It comes from the book of James. But. Does the culture sometimes need to reform before political policies? Um, how do we do that? If there was one or two areas that it would be good for us to influence the culture, what would that be? I mean, many things come to mind, like logic. Well, it's been said that politics is downstream from culture. 
And I think there's a lot of truth to that. The things that we see going on in the political sphere oftentimes are a function of uh, what's going on upstream in culture. And um, most notably what is in informative culture is what it takes to be its binding truth. And for 200 and something years, what was seen as a kind of binding foundational truth was something of a Judeo-Christian mindset as it informed uh, a host of different things in the, in the uh, largely the social fabric in the United States. If there was one thing, and this sounds self-serving for a couple educators, to say that in terms of how, how uh, we as believers can impact, it's in, in our youth and education. And, and education. Um, either formally or in some way informally, being able to involve ourselves in, in educating young fertile minds. Um, what you're seeing occurring in the streets of the United States today in, in some very notable places really reflects the fact that, that the university campus is now come to the culture. And, and we're all on campus now, said Andrew Sullivan. Um, so those of us who've been involved in the university for, for the number of years that we've been involved in really aren't, aren't, aren't particularly surprised by the kinds of things that we're seeing in the streets because if you've been involved in the university for any length of time, you see that that kind of seedbed of ideas has been sown deeply into these young minds and now we're seeing it come to fruition. So one of the key things, I think, is education. I don't know what you guys would offer. Yeah, I mean, going back to your first question, I. I'd put it more as a reciprocal type of relationship. I agree that it starts in the culture and it works its way up to the law, but the law also provides this, uh, kind of solidifies in many ways what the culture is thinking because people often look to the law, you know, it, as, as a way to, you know, judge what is right and what is wrong. And especially if they don't have a, a Christian worldview or an int uh, transcendent uh, moral framework to go to. And so, yeah, I, I would say it's more of an intrinsic or a reciprocal type of relationship. I just wanted to add that. Um, so one of you talked about how Christians like should be willing to engage in politics with specifically Christian arguments. And I feel like it can be hard because we also talk about how Christians can be both Democrats and Republicans. And I think it can give this impression of like church dissension. Um, and I think there's things that most Christians like agree on, like abortion, but how do we deal with Christians giving separate opinions on less like moral issues, um, if we might be perceived as disunified? And do you think the, the church should be more unified politically? That's a really great question. Um, I, um, yeah, so, to to the to your point about yeah so what what I was saying is I think that absolutely Christians should should feel free to make uh, make the case for any political policy position from a Christian worldview and be straightforward about that. Um, it may be that your ability to persuade someone on a political issue from your worldview lends credence to your to your understanding of the world and lends credence to biblical truth more generally. I mean, this is one, one of the ways that we just engage people normally in life. We talk about the things that, um, the, the real reasons that persuade us of a position. Um, so we should feel free 
to uh, make Christian arguments. At the same time, I do think that Christians oftentimes overstep the um, over o- overstep in um, making claims that certain policy positions are entailed uh, by a Christian worldview or biblical values. I think there the, I think there are a lot of uh, policy positions that are simply a matter of prudence, and it really requires um, getting in the weeds and um, working out what what kind of policy leads to the best um, the best situation of, of human flourishing. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say generally that um, the kind of arguments that we need to make um, or should be making need to be grounded in a deep understanding of the of uh, the policy position that we're talking about um, and we need to be careful about making claims that this is a necessary entailment of a biblical view. Go ahead. I would agree with that, with this caveat. There are some issues that, that are just more foundational. If politics is, involves the question of how we ought to order our lives together, it's a foundational question as to whom we count in the we. Um, who is it that would count as a human person that would be uh, qualified to be protected by the, the laws and rights of, of a political order. So, so issues in terms of the nature of a human person and what that entails, the foundational building blocks of a society in terms of family, the ability to freely exercise religion, um, these things in my view rise to a level uh, uh, of importance that are more important than, say, uh, the amount of money in a spending bill. As important as the latter might be, there are just some things that are more important that, that, that I believe um, we do need to be seeing the clear scriptural guidance on these kinds of questions. Um, there's an argument out there in the public square, and, and perhaps you're sympathetic toward it, it's called the seamless garment argument. And advocates of this argument would argue that Christians can vote for candidates who, who, they ent- who, are, who they vehemently disagree with on, say, things like life issues or marriage, sexuality issues, because in the grand scheme of things, this, this political platform represents uh, something that I agree with uh, in its totality more than these other issues. And so um, people of that sort can sometimes say that I'm not a single-issue voter in this, this kind of sense. Um, I just sort of throw out rhetorically for you to consider whether there may be issues that are, that are of such scope and of such severity that they rise to the level that if a candidate supports something like that, that it really begs the question of whether we can give that person um, our allegiance. The example I always give is, could you have voted for John C. Breckinridge in 1860? Now, most people don't have any idea who John C. Breckinridge was. He was a future uh, cabinet member in the Confederate States of America. He, in 1860, represented the candidate for the positive view of, of chattel slavery. Um, if John C. Breckinridge had won the presidency in 1860 and not Abraham Lincoln, uh, let's just say that history might have uh, played out a little differently. Could you have supported John C. Breckinridge in 1860? It's likely, now that I've told you a little bit about his political platform, 
that you would probably not be able to support John C. Breckenridge. But what if I told you that his political platform included a host of other things that you might have found uh, politically desirable back in 1860? Could you still have supported John C. Breckinridge in 1860? That illustration raises the issue that there are some issues that are just so foundational and so fundamental and, and perhaps so biblically informed that we do need to get those right. And that there may be people in our midst that are in error about them. It just may be the case. And sometimes those are hard words for us to hear. Yeah, for me, it's not the fact that we have political disagreements. It's the way we go about voicing our political disagreements with one another that leads to division. Because I think unity in the church, you know, the Bible talks a whole lot about maintaining unity in the church. And, you know, it's usually we, we can disagree charitably with one another. Um, and I... Yeah, I just want to emphasize that p political divisions don't necessarily ne need to lead to divisions in the church. It's often because, you know, the way we go about arguing such things that sometimes we'll accuse people of having certain motives maybe that they don't, or we'll assume that because they believe this, it must entail all these other things. And um, so I, I think charity goes a long way in maintaining unity in the body of Christ when we might have political disagreements. Um, so... It's 8.15 right now. We're at time. Um, we, do, uh, I'll just say, if you need to leave, um, feel free to leave. We, we won't be uh, disrespected or anything, but we'll con continue to at least to honor the two people who are standing there. Dr. Weiler, you talked about um, that if one candidate wins, that the paths, I'm using my own words, would be very divergent from each other. So could you gentlemen comment on the foundational values of each candidate and campaign and how those values would play out in policy and action if one gets elected over the other? And it's a specific question. Gen gentlemen, the lady invites us to shark-infested waters. <laughs> I'm the one in the hurly-burly American politics. Look, it's a simple fact of the matter that what animates the Biden-Harris campaign is something uh, very different. And, and I, time, time wanes here, so uh, let me let somebody else sort of take that question on. Um, in terms of uh, reference to a video that you could watch on uh, YouTube, it's a recent address by the head of the Claremont Institute um, uh, a man of reputation and repute, um, and he lays it out for us in that. In terms of what this election might represent is what political scientists look for as a, is potentially the next critical realignment election. That, that in the history of the American Republic, there have been a series of elections, six of them, that that it is argued that as a result of that election that we had, we had arrived at such a kind of crossroad that we, we, we come to a kind of moment of critical pause to, deci to decide which direction we're going to go. It's a 17-minute video. The man's name is Klingenstein. Tom Klingenstein, he is the, uh, I believe, the head of the Claremont Institute up here in the in Inland Empire. There's a 17-minute video, video, video called Trump 2020. 
a man versus a movement. Now, I'll be honest with you. At the end of the day, um, he says we need to hold our, hold our nose and vote for Donald Trump. And you may agree or disagree with his conclusion, but I think he's exactly spot on in terms of this uh, cultural and political crossroads that he puts his finger on that we're around. So that's, that's my chicken way around Andy's question. Yeah, I, I would just add that we, we were talking a little bit about this before that, you know, when we were at uh, Reagan versus Carter or like at uh, Bush versus Clinton or even uh, um, Gore versus Bush, you know, the differences between the two parties have been growing further and further and further apart as our society has, has become more polarized. And so even though I won't directly answer her question either, I, I just want to say that the Voting for a Democrat versus a Republican, it's, they, they aren't as close together as they used to be. And we are seeing them continue to be more pol or polarized and pulled more towards the extremes um, of their respective political philosophies. And you know, that, that presents problems for both sides uh, in, in some ways. But you also, you know, and I, I would also add to that that the, there's more than voting is more than just about the person. It's also on the platform that they are um, running on. Uh, sometimes, you know, we can dislike the person, but the fact is they'll appoint people in their administration that will operate very differently than they themselves might uh, if they were operating at all those different positions. So there's a lot more implications beyond just, um, you know, the, the person at the top. Biola has a, um, an event coming up on I think this coming Wednesday with David French, who is an evangelical uh, political commentator and lawyer. He is um, stridently anti-Trump, a never-Trumper. So if you want an evangelical perspective that, um, yeah, is never-Trump, then that, you, it, that would be a good thing to watch. It's going to be live-streamed. Yeah, there's a recent debate between him, David French, and Eric Metaxas. And you, if you kind of want both extremes of that argument, then uh, I suggest you go on YouTube and watch that debate. Well, thanks for taking my question. Um, so mine has to do with um, anti-intellectualism that you talked about within sort of fundamentalism, Christianity, and education in general. So the, the educational landscape is, especially at the state level, markedly one direction politically. Um, you're going to get a very biased view one way politically if you go to the vast majority of colleges in America. And because most people don't have the economic means potentially to attend private Christian university, um, I've heard a lot of conservative commentators just say, if you can't avoid, if you can't afford something like that, just go to a trade school or don't go to college at all, which sounds anti-intellectual, but those very same people will be very intellectual themselves. So if conservative people who want to pursue the intellectual life well, but maybe aren't able to attend a university like Biola, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, well, I mean, higher education is in a position where it's so uh, bloated and expensive and in many ways anti-intellectual within the academy that um, just doing something else entirely, um, depending on what your options are, is something very serious to consider. And I think that there are probably a lot of uh, college degrees that aren't, aren't worth much at all. 
Um, it, so yeah, it, see, it seems to me that certainly the um, the issue of anti-intellectualism isn't isn't solved by pursuing higher education necessarily, um, and I think that there will be increasingly um, more opportunities for people who really want to um, pursue a liberal education or cultivate the life of the mind. In there's there's actually a professor at the University of Texas where I did did my work who is actively involved with. Um, um, entrepreneurs and, and fundraisers to, uh, to start just this sort of uh, kind of different educational um, program um, that, that uh, works some with colleges but is, but is a different sort of thing and oriented to getting a real education. I think that more and more we're going to see that sort of, um, see that sort of thing. Yeah, Jonathan, this didn't really directly address your question. There you are. Um, but it's a, a symptom of a greater thing. Uh, Rod Dreher writes a, writes a really interesting book called The Benedict Option, which you might uh, pick up. It's a very readable book. His basic conclusion is that you know education is just one area that has been so conclusively lost that really uh, it's just a, a symptom of a greater disease, and the disease is that we've lost the culture war. And Dreher argues that in light of the uh, fact that the culture seems inexorably headed in a certain direction in light of the uh, uh, victory of uh, a certain view, and, and we're not amongst that view, he argues, that we ought to, in some sense, cloister. St. Benedict was famous for, for forming monasteries in which people would withdraw from culture. And Dreher argues that the thing to do to answer your question, Jonathan, is to homeschool and to withdraw from the culture. Uh, he, he's, he's not, homeschooling for Dreher is not a pejorative second class thing. He thinks it's your children will actually get a better education in light of the indictment that, uh, Jonathan, your question uh, poses on the secular education system. So if you're inclined to be sympathetic with such a view, the, the Benedict option might be an interesting read for you. Cool. Well, I think we'll uh, draw this time to a close. Uh, let me uh, pray for us. Lord God, we uh, thank you uh, for um, yeah, just for this opportunity. God, thank you for the country that we get to live in and inhabit and that we have the freedom to discuss these things openly. Um, God, I just uh, pray and ask for wisdom for all of us. God, we, I mean, there's few things more where we need wisdom than politics, because there's so much complexity to it, so much nuance to it. Um, so God, I just pray that as we are all considering, you know, how to vote, uh, Lord, in this election, how we engage politically, how we get engage in these conversations, Lord, that you give us a spirit of humility, that we seek your wisdom, Lord, above all else. And yeah, just that we would be beacons and lights to the world around us, ultimately. So I ask this in your name. Amen. Yeah, and we'll be here for a little bit in case you want to ask more questions.